Well, good evening. You can grab a seat. Uh, and welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, if this is your very first time, or actually, I'm just kind of curious. Who's, this is your very first time to Grace Bible Church. Your very first time. All right. Hello. Well, welcome left side and a little bit of middle and note one, two people over there. Okay, good. Mostly regulars. Good. I like it. This is the strong side. Uh, we, man, we're, we're a week in. We're a week in and I'm really excited. I'm really pumped. Uh, I'm, how many of us actually, uh, we've been here a week and we've been, you know, we've been here before. We're maybe returning. How many of us actually, we came to the morning service last week, but then we were like, holy cow, Never again. And now we're at the evening. <laughs> good. All right. Good. You caught the vision. Tell your friends because I tried. I try to announce it every single year and people just don't, don't tend to listen. This was good though. That was like 10 or 12 of us. So uh, in case you weren't at the morning uh, last week, we had a trial by fire and I don't know if many of us made it through, but you know what? Uh, some of us did, and that's what counts. Um, but uh, man, we are a weekend. We, we are here. Uh, the semester's underway. Got a week on our belts. We already have a football victory under our belts. There it is. Uh, take that, Arizona state. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Those people. Is it a state? I guess so. Yeah, that's true. Uh, well, yeah. So Good. I'm glad we're kind of off to a good start. I'm glad that we have this bright, beautiful future ahead of us. Uh, but, you know, in all honesty, I love the past. I love having a bright future in front of me, but I majored at Texas A&M in history. Yeah. I'm the one uh, who did that. I guess. Uh, and man, and we, we learned in history, man, I, I learned to appreciate and to love man, the people that have gone before us, the events that have occurred, the, the cool stories that you're able to hear and pick up on of the people that have lived and died and just done really crazy stuff. Uh, one of my favorite stories that I heard during my time majoring in history at A&M uh, was an event that took place on September 16th, 1979. And it happened... 76, sorry. And it happened in Armenia, okay, Eastern Europe. And in Armenia, there was this bus driver on September 16th, 1976, who was driving, lost control of his vehicle. He was right next to this big lake. He was driving on top of a dam. His bus went off the side. It hit into this lake, Ureven Lake, and it sank 30 feet immediately, just immediately in a freezing water. It's September. It's Armenia. It's very cold. So this bus, you know, made of metal mostly, uh, just sinks, right? That's what happens when it gets in water. And as soon as it sank, all the people inside were like, oh man, we got to get out of here. This is bad, uh, you know, generally. And so they tried to escape and they tried to open up doors, windows, nothing worked. Nothing worked. All these people were trapped inside this bus, unable to get out. Fortunately, uh, at that moment, there happened to be a jogger who saw the whole thing, heard the crash, uh, ran to the scene, saw that there was this bus that had landed in the water. And uh, this jogger, unfortunately, though, found himself in the year 1976. So there were no cell phones, right? There's no one that he can really call. There's no help that he can raise. Uh, so it's just kind of him looking at this situation, looking at this bus that sank into the water. And, you know, for most of us, that'd be a very daunting thing, right? Because the average person can't really do a lot about getting people out of a frozen, deep underwater box, right? Made of metal. That's very difficult. And so this guy, thankfully, was not an average person. This guy turned out to be Shavarsh Karap- Karapatian. Oh my gosh. I practiced this a million times. Karapatian. Oh my gosh. We're just going to call him Shavash. 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 Okay. And there we go. Oh my gosh. And there he is. And you're thinking to yourself, wow, Shavash, 
he won so many awards for having the best cleft chin anyone's ever seen. And you're not far off. He won all those awards, not just for having the most amazing cleft chin you will ever see. He also won a lot of awards in uh, international and national uh, and setting world records in the realm of swimming. This guy was a champion swimmer. So Shavash, looking out at the scene in that moment, thought, I can do this. Like, I, I have this in my ability. So when he was faced with that crisis of this bus crashing into the water, he started swimming. He started swimming towards the bus, uh, which was very difficult, right? I mean, it's 30 feet underwater. It's also 80 feet offshore. It's also in a lake that is absolutely horrible. Uh, this lake was known for being incredibly polluted. So it's very, very dark, very, very murky water. You can't really see anything. Uh, it was freezing, right? Remember, it's, it's freezing water. Uh, and for whatever reason, this lake was known to have just tons and tons of broken glass just in it. Just a thing that happens in Armenia from time to time, I guess. I don't know. And also, he found himself, in this moment, he had just run 12 miles, right? He was jogging. He was running 12 miles. He just finished his 12-mile run, and he's in this moment, but he says, you know what? I- I'm going to go for it. And so he swam, and sure enough, he made it to the bus. He made it to the bus. He got to the back windshield, kicked out the back windshield, uh, and started pulling people to shore. He would go inside the bus, grab a person, uh, bring them 30 feet up. Remember, he's 30 feet underwater. Bring them 30 feet up, take them to the shore, drop them off, and then immediately go back in. And he did this 30 times. 30 times, Shavarsh made his way out to the bus, went down, tried to pull people out. In total, he saved 20 people. And after that 20th person, after that 30th trip, he eventually just completely collapsed on the shore uh, from exhaustion. Uh, he had blood poisoning uh, and hypothermia. And he slipped from that exhaustion into a coma that lasted for 45 days. Very impressive nap. Good job, Shavars. You earned it. And at the end of that 45 days, he awoke to discover that his body had been so wrecked by that experience that he would never be able to swim ever again. And now he owns a shoe store in Moscow. So that's cool too, I suppose. Uh, But we see in this story, we see in this situation, in this event, what I love, which is you watch the right person be at just the right place at the right time. Man, this is the perfect representation of that. This was the right guy for that job. His skills, his schedule, man, it all aligned to that moment where he was able to face this crisis well. And the reality is that, man, a lot of times our experiences, our crises that we face don't always line up that perfectly, right? They don't always line up that well with our, uh, our personal skills, our personal schedules. This isn't working. So what we see with Shavarsh is something that we generally don't experience. Generally speaking, when we see a crisis in our lives, uh, it's not going to line up perfectly with who we are, with what we want to do, with our timing. Uh, We're going to go home. If If you went home tonight and you heard maybe some sort of explosion of some sort outside your house, no one's going to come running and knocking on your door saying, okay, did anyone just watch the third season of Parks and Rec? And yeah, okay, great. We need, you know, like that's not going to happen. Like that's not, that's generally not going to occur in your life. 
It's not going to line up perfectly with what you want to do. And so a lot of times when we see this, when it's something that's outside of our skill set, outside of our schedule, we, we hesitate, right? Because in that moment, we maybe lack confidence in our personal abilities. In that moment, maybe we have put too much confidence in our personal plans. We think to ourselves, man, I'm not really the right person. I'm the wrong person for this. Maybe this is the wrong time for this thing, for this crisis. So maybe I should just stick with what I know. Maybe I I shouldn't really talk to that classmate who looks super bummed out because, man, it could be awkward. Like, I don't know how that would go. Maybe I, I don't have time to help that person or that organization that I see struggling. So maybe, maybe I'll just steer clear. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't bring up the God subject with that family member, or that roommate, or that friend, or that coworker, or that stranger that I just met. Because I don't know if I know what to say. We doubt our abilities. We doubt the timing. We think, man, maybe I should just steer clear. Maybe it's best if I just kind of stick to my own thing, to what I know. I mean, we we live in a culture that embraces relativism. We talked about this last week. The fact that our culture, man, they believe that everyone uh, following their own path, doing what they think is best, man, that's the best possible uh, philosophy for us to all grab a hold of. And we think as a culture, man, maybe if everyone just did their own thing, then we will finally find peace and harmony. The end result of relativism surely will be just this perfect, wonderful, joyous peace for all people. But we're studying the book of Judges because the book of Judges actually focuses on a culture that embraced relativism. But instead of finding peace and harmony, what we see in the book of Judges is that culture discovers that all that, relativ- all that relativism brings is rebellion and destruction and death. We saw this. So what we see in the book of Judges is a picture, a perfect picture, for why we as believers are called to reject relativism and instead embrace the Lord's plan. Because ultimately what we see in the book of Judges, what we see in all scripture is that God's path is best because he knows what's best and his path leads to life where all other paths lead to death. We might think it's best to doubt our own abilities, to to maybe depend on our own plans, but as believers, we are called to place our confidence in God's ability to use us in his plans. We see this particularly in Judges chapter 4, which is where we're going to be this evening. If you have a Bible or an app or whatever you want to open up, Judges chapter 4, we open up on the Israelites. Chapter 4, verse 1, and we see that the Israelites again did evil in the Lord's sight after Ehud's death. And the Lord turned them over to King Jabin of Canaan, who ruled in Hazor. Now the general of his army was Sisera, who lived in Hersheth Hagiam. So what we see right here is basically the nation of Israel. Remember, it's a bunch of tribes. The tribes of Israel are all gathered together. And man, they are just messing up. They're messing up. They are doing evil in the Lord's sight. And because of that, they are finding themselves being oppressed, finding themselves facing destruction. We talked about this last week. Uh, They start to make compromises within their community uh, that would bring about corruption, which would eventually lead to their destruction. And so what we see here is that Ehud, that was a judge that was really cool. He was left-handed. He assassinated the king with his crazy sword. 
Read Judges chapter, chapter 3. It's a fun, fun little read that's kind of gross. Uh, but you will see that Ehud died, right? What we see here is Ehud died. And after he died, Israel was like, oh, okay, party on. And so then they just kind of go back into their system of just corruption, rebellion, and destruction. And so because of that, the Lord turns him over to King Jabin, Cabin, Canaan. Okay? That's more of a title than a name, but whatever. So Jabin is the guy. You'll see his name pop up a little bit more. But really the person that we're going to see pop up a lot is this other guy, Sisera, his general. Anytime I hold it up, let's just make that the signal, I guess. We'll just roll with it. So Sisera pops up and the Israelites cried out for help to the Lord because Sisera had 900 chariots with iron-rimmed wheels. And he cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. So what we see is that Jabin was the ultimate ruler, but Sisera was his kind of agent of death. He was kind of his right-hand guy who actually commanded the army. If Jabin was the owner of the football team, Sisera was the actual head coach, right? The guy who's actually steering that ship. Sisera is the professor of the class who has ultimate authority. Or sorry, Jabin is the professor of the class who has ultimate authority. But Sisera is that TA who's the greater. And you're like, oh, true power with you, my liege. You know, that's because you recognize, okay, that's who. If Jabin uh, was Emperor Palpatine, uh, then Sisera is Darth Vader, right? So the Emperor of Palpatine is the ruler of the empire in Star Wars and... You just need to do some homework. But man, but so Sisera, Sisera's Darth Vader. That's just the connection I'm trying to make. Okay, so Sisera's Darth Vader. And what we see is Darth Vader has a lot of chariots. He's really well equipped and he's wrecking havoc on the Israelites. And so because of that, the Israelites are like, man, this is terrible. And they cry out. Now what we see here, sometimes we preach this and we say, okay, well, that means that Israel essentially uh, repented. That's not necessarily true. When we're we're reading this in the Hebrew, we don't see necessarily repentance. And when I say repentance, I mean uh, you're doing something, you realize, man, I don't want to do this anymore. It's wrong. And so you turn around 180 degrees and you go the opposite direction. That's repentance. This is just Israel crying out. More than likely, the term here is just saying, look, they're just crying out. Ah, bah. Meh, like that. That's, that's actually the Hebrew right there. Ah, meh. Like that's it. They're crying out for help from the Lord, but they're not actually changing their ways. But what's beautiful in this moment is that God doesn't require repentance. God doesn't wait for Israel to turn their game around. Instead, God shows mercy anyway. He sees their pain. He sees their cry 20 years after these, the oppression. And so he moves in. He has grace and mercy for these people, even though they haven't learned their lesson, even though they continue to do the same thing over and over and over again, sort of like this guy in this video. Hey, Donna, I've got you on my radar. Hey, Donna, do you think these pot plants are risk or not? Hey, Donna, this clock looks pretty smick. Some people have asked me, do you trust her? Donna, my hair's a bit fluffy. Can you remind me to buy gel later? Stop. Donna, you were saying something about pests before. I found a critter. We're really cramming in a lot. Just seriously, just Just, stop. Stop. It's a wart. Hey, Donna, I'm feeling like you're not really appreciating this anymore. Donna, you're just envious of my quick wit and hilariousness. Donna, do you want to be my garden mama? 
What does that even mean? <laughs> Man, that, that's Israel. And honestly, that's us. Where time and time again, we continue to do the same thing over and over and over again. And yet, God in his mercy still cares for us, still pulls us out, still loves us. Somehow that woman is staying at Ikea with that man through so many horrific Swedish-related puns. And our God is just that gracious, and more so. It's hard to believe, but he's even more gracious. Because we are the same people. We do the same thing in Israel. We find ourselves in those ruts, and we dig ourselves deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. But God still loves us. God still cares. Jesus Christ died for us while we were still sinners. While we were still enemies of God, spitting in his face. He saved us because he loves us. And we see that love because God raised up Deborah. Now, Deborah, prophetess, wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She would sit under the date palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the Ephraimite hill country. And the Israelites would come up to her to have their disputes settled. All right, so essentially right here what we see is this judge by the name of Deborah. And what we see right here is something different that maybe takes some of us by surprise. uh, Because Deborah is a woman. She's a prophetess. She's a wife. And this is more rare when we study our Old Testament history to see a woman in some sort of high prominent leadership position. Now, it's not completely unheard of, right? There's plenty of other times where we see strong female figures in our Old Testament. Esther, Ruth, the, Esther was a queen. I mean, so we see these other figures, but this is rare at Israel at this time because God was choosing generally to work through a different kind of system where he had these prominent male figures that would lead as kings or judges or, or, or leaders or whatever. Uh, and generally you didn't see women in these same positions. They would, all, they would pop up and they would do amazing things. It doesn't mean that women were less faithful or, or, or less important. Uh, it was just God wanted to use a certain type of system to show, hey, there's, a, there's an order to this world that I can bring. There's an order to the Godhead. There's an order to humankind, right? That's all, all he's trying to say. So what we see here, though, is a, a kind of disruption of the norm. And the audience reading this, hearing this, would be like, man, what, what's up with that? Like a girl, like a female judge? Like, that's kind of that's crazy. And they would realize in this moment that, man, Israel's gotten to a really terrible place. Because essentially, when God has raised her up, what we see in chapter 5 beyond this is that she is being praised as the mother of Israel, the loving, gracious mother of Israel. And it's meant to respect her, to affirm her. And it's also meant to draw the parallel to show us, you know what? God used a woman because Israel, they were acting like children. And they needed a mom. Because they were acting like kids who didn't know any better. God is purposefully throwing off their system to say, look, you are really in a bad spot. If you act like kids, I'm going to treat you like kids. Is essentially what he's doing. When I was a freshman, my second semester uh, as a freshman at Texas A&M University, uh, I had a class that was at the unholy hour of 8 a.m. I didn't know what I was thinking. It was a horrible mistake. Never again because I graduated, but also I think that was the last idea I ever took because I was like, this is so terrible. And the only way that I really got to it was because I had a group, there were about eight friends of mine who we all happened to be in the exact same class. And we needed that camaraderie because we lived on Southside in the Commons. Yay. (laughs) 
Everyone hates it now, I guess. Uh, but we lived in the south side in the commons, and we had to go all the way to West Campus for this class. The far distant land of business people. Right? We had to get all the way over there. And so we had to band together. And we had to keep each other accountable. We said, okay, guys, let's get serious. Let's get real. We're going to go to this class. All right? We're all going to wake up. We're going to go to this class. It's an easy class. It's an easy A. It's, we've all been looking at Rate My Prof or whatever the heck it's called now. And we're going we're gonna to make this happen. We're going to get this A. It's going to be good. It's going to be good. And there are a couple friends in that group who told me, pulled me in, my roommate aside, said, look, they lived a couple floors above us. And so they told us, look, we may not wake up. But if we don't wake up, you need to come wake us up, all right? That's, please, just come wake us up if, if, you, if, if we need to. Just in the off chance that we don't wake up, please come wake us up. Uh, this translated into, uh, they never woke up. And my roommate and I always woke them up every single day that we had the class. And so every single time this class would roll around, we would wake up extra early so that we could go upstairs, find these guys. And at first, we tried to be really gentle about it. You know, we'd like turn the lights on or like blow in their ears or I don't know, like... <laughs> come on, smookums. Like, I don't, like, just kind of, let's go, you know, waft coffee, I don't know. And we would try to wake them up in that way, and it never worked. It never worked. Because they would stay up until, like, 4 a.m. playing ping pong. They love playing ping pong. So dumb. If you play ping pong, you're cool, but these guys, not at all. And so they would play ping pong until, like, 4 a.m. They'd go to bed at, like, 6. And so, of course, they were still sleeping at our 8 a.m. class. But we would say, okay, no, we, we got to get them up. Uh, it's not working to be so gentle. And so eventually we just decided, okay, if you're going to act like kids, we're going to treat you like kids, right? Like, if you're going to behave as children, we'll treat you like children. And by children, I mean people that I punch. And so we would go into their room, and we would just punch the heck out of them. Anything we could see, like the back of their head, like we wouldn't hit their face, but like the back of their head, awesome. Uh, or like their back, whatever. Anything that was exposed, we would just start wailing on them until they would eventually get up. Because we thought to ourselves, hey, you're bringing, you're doing, you're making me do this. Like you're the one bringing about these punches that, oh, so cathartic. I highly recommend it. If you have a friend that likes to get punched, man, take advantage of that. Uh, and so we found ourselves in those mornings, man, having to go in, treat these guys like kids because they're acting like kids. God says, you're going to act like kids. I'm going to give you a mom. I'm going to raise up this new judge, this new leader, and she's going to actually function in a way that settles disputes. This is rare. Most of the judges, all the other judges that we see in the book, they don't actually like pass judgments. The term that really is best suited for this book uh, is an idea of, of a leader, of tribal leader. Most of these people, they, they lead the nation, they lead the tribes out of this or out of that. Deborah is the only one who actually functions as a judge, the way that we think of judges, passing laws and making people do things that they're not supposed to do or stop them, whatever. God says, I'm going to give you this judge, this person to separate the kids and calm everybody down, give out graham crackers because they're acting like kids. So Deborah, God's chosen spokesperson, then calls forth another character, Barak. She summoned Barak, son of Ab and Noam, from Kadesh and Naphtali. And she said to him, is it not true that the Lord God of Israel is commanding you? Go, march to Mount Tabor, take with you 10,000 men from Naphtali and Zebulun. In other words, she's saying to him, God is commanding you. Okay, that weird question thing, that's all she's saying. God is commanding you. Go, march to Mount Tabor, take with you 10,000 men from Naphtali and Zebulun. 
She tells Barak, look, you are being called by the Lord. You are being commanded by the Lord to go to Tabor, to take these men, to move them to this place. Why? Because I will bring Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to you at the Kishon River, which is by the mountain, along with his chariots and huge army. I will hand him over to you. Deborah says, Barak, come on. God is calling you. God is commanding you. God is sending you to this mountain with these men. And when you go there, God is going to deliver into your hands this horrible enemy that's been oppressing you for 20 years. And God is going to destroy all these people. God has laid forth this incredible, clear plan for Barak. He has picked the the leader. He's chosen the location. He's chosen the strategy. He's even guaranteed the victory. Clear, concise promise. Barak's just got to follow through. So what does he do? He said to her, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you do not go with me, I will not go. So she said, okay, I will indeed go with you. Barak, in that moment, in that clear command moment, what does he do? He hesitates. And we don't know exactly why. I got some good guesses. First and foremost, he probably doubted his ability to actually defeat another army. He probably doubted his own abilities because what we find out in chapter five is that the nation of Israel, no one had weapons. They'd been all taken away, confiscated. So Barak is thinking, yeah, okay, I'll have 10,000 dudes who all just have like rocks and whistles. Like (laughs) there's nothing out, there's nothing to attack people with in this land. He's doubting his abilities. He's also probably doubting the plan. Because honestly, Mount Tabor, this is an isolated place. And so he knows, if I take all my guys up the mountain, we can only stay there so long. There's only so much beef jerky we can pack on the trip. At some point, we have to come down. And if we're all on that mountain, there's nowhere to go but down the mountain. And that means that Sisera can show up with his super well-equipped army with 900 iron chariots that could just slaughter us just so much faster. This could just run us down. He could show up and he could just wait for us to go to the bottom of the mountain. As soon as we get there, he's just going to kill us. He's going to murder us. I don't know exactly what it is, but I'd be willing to guess he's either doubting his own abilities or he's depending on maybe his own plans. So what does he ask for? He says, Deborah, please come with me. Come with me. Why? It's not because Barak thinks that she would do a better job commanding the army. It's not because Barak thinks that the men won't follow him. What he's doing in this moment is very uh, similar to something Moses requested of the Lord in the desert years and years and years and years earlier. What Barak is asking for is basically a sign of God's presence. He sees Deborah as the chosen spokesperson of the Lord. That's what it meant to be a prophet or a prophetess. Means that God was speaking through you to the nation. So Barak is saying, Man, I need you here because I want to know that God is with me. And while this isn't necessarily a bad request, right? And we know this because God allows it to happen because she relents, right? She says, Okay, I will go with you. So it wasn't a wrong, it wasn't a sinful request, but while it's not bad, it's also not best. Because what we see through his request is that. You will not gain fame on the expedition you are undertaking, for the Lord will turn Sisera over to a woman. Deborah got up and went with Barak to Kadesh. She tells him, look, that's fine. I'll come with you. But this lack of faith 
this request, the fact that you're not trusting in God's clear promises means that you are missing out on reward. You're missing out on blessing. You're missing out on glory that God was going to give to you, that ultimately was going to go to God himself. This is the same thing that Paul warns us about in 1 Corinthians where he says that each competitor must exercise self-control in everything, and that they do it to receive a perishable crown, but we believers, an imperishable one. So I do not run uncertainly or box like one who hits only air. Instead, I subdue my body, make it my slave, so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. In the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul's talking about, look, all believers are essentially in a race. All believers know that we have a life beyond death. We all know that our hope is in this future existence. Isn't that secure? We've been bought and paid for. Our salvation is set. There's nothing that can separate me from the love of God. There's nothing that can take me out of my God's hands once he's adopted me as a son or his daughter. As soon as I place my faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, as soon as I trust that he died for me, that he was God who stepped out of heaven and onto earth for my sake. If I trust him as my God, if I trust him as my savior, if I ask him for forgiveness, for the sin, for the brokenness in my life, my salvation is set. My salvation is secure. And my hope is beyond this world. But Paul says, we still have now. While we have this future hope, we still have today. So what are we going to do with it? That's why he spends 1 Corinthians 9 saying, if we're going to be here now, we need to run well. We need to compete well. We need to live in a way that glorifies the Lord, that's faithful to the God who saved us. He says we need to be running, subduing our bodies, training ourselves so that we're not disqualified meaning so that we don't lose out on opportunity, so that we don't lose out on rewards, so we don't lose out on blessing that could be ours if we just make ourselves available to God's call. Because honestly, God's mission is going to be accomplished no matter what. You're running no matter what. But are you going to run well? My eight-and-a-half-month-old is named Charlotte. She's wonderful. And she, okay, and she, okay, well, so, all right, hold on. Now I have to catch my thoughts. Uh, so she is uh, at a stage in her life where she has to nap, all right? That's just, it happens. When you're eight and a half months old, you just, you got to nap. It's just the way of the world. And so she finds napping to be inevitable. But she can either nap well or she can choose to nap not well. If she's napping well, uh, this is it. This is what it looks like. Uh, she will be placed in her crib. The sound machine is on. Uh, she, if you place her down on her back, she immediately rolls over to her front. She crawls over to the very edge of her crib. She somehow finds her bear, slams it against her face, butt just up to high heaven. And she sleeps, man. This is, this is great. Like right here, she's just out like a rock. This is how she sleeps well. She gets in this position. She gets all set. Great. That nap's going to be an hour. It's going to be two hours long. Oh, hallelujah. And when that happens, there is blessing for both her and me. If she sleeps well, if she naps well, I am just refreshed. I get to accomplish tasks. I get to straighten up things or do whatever. I can get ready for the time when she will arise yet again. 
me or my wife. It's more often my wife, actually. But we love it when she naps well. And she's better off. She receives blessings. She's more rested. She just feels better. She's going to be in a better mood. Like, oh, hey, everybody, when she wakes up. On the flip side, it is possible that sometimes she does not nap well. She naps poorly. And when that happens, there is no, there is no blessing to be found in my home. <laughs> it's just not there. Because when she naps poorly, she wakes up mad. And there's generally snot on her face. I don't know why. <laughs> there's just generally snot in her fi- on her face, tears on her eyes. And she's like, let's do this. <laughs> I'm awake again, suckers. And we just have to deal with it. And man, when she doesn't nap well, that, if she doesn't nap well in the morning, she's not going to nap well in the afternoon. She's probably not going to sleep well that night. I don't know why. It's this horrible downward spiral of no sleep for anyone. Because, man, sleep is inevitable, but she can either do it well or she can do it poorly. God knows. He has called us. If you are a believer, if you are a Christian, God has picked you up out of death, put you on the path to life, and he has entered you into a race. And you're running. No matter what, but are you running well? Are you running in such a way that you are available to the Lord's call? Are you running in such a way that it will bring blessing to you and to the Lord? Because you know what? That race is going to happen. God's mission will be accomplished, but will you be a part of it? What we see in Barak is, man, he lost out on his part. God's mission was accomplished. If we keep going into verse 15, what we see is that the Lord routed Sisera, all his chariotry, all his army with the edge of the sword. Sisera jumped out of his chariot, ran away on foot. God completely routed the enemy. Some commentators, they theorized this probably was happening because God used this great powerful storm or some sort of flood to just throw the enemy army into disarray, to maybe kill a bunch of them just in one big blow. Because a bunch of unarmed Israelites, man, they're not going to do a lot. They don't have weapons. So God steps in and he just wrecks havoc on these people to the point where the enemy general, man, he's running for his life. What we'll see is that Sisera, he keeps running, 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 and he finds his way to this tent of this guy uh, who he made a peace treaty with. And so he's like, hey, can I stay here? The guy's wife's home. She's like, sure, sure, sure. Come on in. He's like, can I have water? Can I lay my head down? She's like, go for it. He's like, okay, listen, if anyone shows up, just tell them I'm not here. And she's like, okay, cool. Sounds great. He's like, okay, cool. And then he falls asleep. And then we see that Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg in one hand and a hammer in the other. And she crept up on him and she drove the tent peg through his temple into the ground while he was asleep from exhaustion and he died. Huh. <laughs> Imagine that. At this point, I'll just tell you, one of my absolute favorite commentators who is now one of my favorite commentators because of what I'm about to tell you. At this point, he said, in an official, like, actual Bible commentary, he says, I wonder what was going through his mind at that point. (laughs) And I said, as a dad, I love that. I can absolutely appreciate that Ikea pun, right? Now we see, in this moment, God defeating, God fulfilling his promises. God's mission was accomplished. He told Barak, look, I'm going to hand the general over to, someone, to a woman. Barak probably thought, oh yeah, Deborah, she's right here. But it wasn't. It was a different woman. It was the wife of this guy. She wasn't even an Israelite. She was a Gentile. 
What we see is God's mission being accomplished, but what we see, sadly, is that Barak removed himself from that mission. Barak's hesitation did not ruin God's plan at all, but his hesitation removed his part in that plan, his role in that mission. He disqualified himself. You know, the truth is that our world, man, we're in crisis. We're not oppressed. You know, we're, we're not uh, under the rule the, of this enemy army or anything like that. Uh, and honestly, uh, it's not even the fact that we see terrible, tragic events. That's not even the crisis I'm talking about. We mentioned last week, you know, it, it's easy for us to focus on the behavior of the people around us. It's easy for us to focus on the way that people are acting and the, what they do. And, and, you know, we should care to an extent. But honestly, we spend so much time focusing on behavior and we should take some of that time, maybe a lot of that time, maybe most of that time and spend it on focusing on what these people believe. Draw our attention away from the behavior, point it at the belief behind it because honestly, that's where the crisis resides. Pew Research Group, this organization that does a lot of different kind of statistics surveys, uh, a lot of them on religious things. And so they kind of did this big tens of thousands of people surveyed, figuring out, okay, so where do people align themselves religiously in America these days? And so they looked at the span of 2007 to 2014, right, just seven years. And they, they asked people, okay, what do you call yourself? In what camp do you reside this doesn't mean that you're actually committed to this religion. It doesn't mean that you're like proving through work or anything that you're, you're doing stuff with this religion. You, it doesn't mean that you have to fulfill any obligations. This is just, are you willing to check the box next to this religion? What they found is in that seven years that the number of people in our country who call themselves Christians went down faster than they've ever seen before. In just seven years, the total number of people who were willing to just check the Christian box went down over 10% in seven years. It's crazy fast. In that exact same span, the people willing to check the box next to Islam, checking the box next to Hinduism, their numbers doubled. The people who said, you know what, I don't want to be in any of these boxes. I want to just sort of be uh, independent or agnostic or atheist. I don't really align myself with any actual religion. That group went up by almost 50% in seven years. Our culture, I mean, our, our nation is facing a crisis of belief. So what do we do about that? God has called every single one of us. God has commanded every single one of us through his word, through his scripture. He's called us all to face this exact crisis. He's called us all to face this crisis by sharing the gospel with the people around us, to present the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, both through our words and through our actions. He says, I want you to go forth to your neighbors. I want you to go to the next city. I want you to go to the next county. I want you to go to the next country. And I want you to tell people about what I've done for humanity. I want you to tell people about the free gift of eternal life that's found through trusting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Please go do this. Make those disciples. 
tell them about God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I'm going to empower you. I'm going to equip you to perform this task. Please, go. It is a clear command given to us by God. And yet so many of us hesitate. Just like Barak, we hesitate. And we think, man, I, I don't know. I don't know if I have the words. I don't, I don't know if I have the time. Man, I'm telling you, the Lord has put you in this place right now so that you would share the gospel. He's given you a community to share the gospel with. If you're a new believer especially, you think, man, I'm new. I don't know really all the ins and outs of this stuff. If you're a new believer, what that means is that you have more friends that are non-believers than anyone else in this room. And that's awesome. That's an amazing opportunity. That's why we have things like start groups that you can join, that you can be a part of, that focus on fellowship, on community. Not just so that we can get to know each other and be like, yay, but so that it's a welcoming environment for you to bring those other non-believers. If you're new to the faith, if you're new to grace, please look for that opportunity to share the gospel. Look for that community. That's why we have things here at our church. Man, I'll tell you, not even just within our own little spheres, but we have broader spheres that you can be a part of. We have broader circles. And one of the greatest needs that we have that I think we sadly don't talk about enough in here. One of the greatest needs we have is with our children. We have this new generation that's rising up that we could be investing in, that we could be pouring ourselves into. These people that, man, the statistics of watching kids drop out of the faith is just so tragic. And it's because there aren't believers a few steps ahead of them willing to pour into their lives. You have children. We have an elementary program. Here at Grace, Sunday mornings, it's very different from the evening. It's a lot earlier, but Sunday mornings, 9.15, we have children's elementary teaching where you can show up in a week and you can just help those, man, first graders, those second graders, those three-year-olds or those third graders. And you can tell them the gospel. You can show them the gospel through your loving actions. You can sign up not just to be a normal teacher. You can sign up to be a buddy, meaning we have so many kids these days who have kind of special needs who show up at Grace and they're looking, man, how can I get my kid integrated? Because they've got these sort of developmental problems, issues that are going to hinder their ability to integrate within the normal classroom. And so we've given them buddies where you just volunteered it. You know what? When Jimmy shows up, when Sally shows up, whatever, I'm going to be with them and I'm going to stick with them all morning. I'm going to help them feel included. I'm going to help integrate them in with the rest of the class, with the activities, with the teaching. I can be that buddy to that kid. And those kids get older, man. When we see them reach fifth and sixth grade, this incredibly pivotal time where kids are honestly starting to really make decisions about their faith. For us, man, that seems so young, but if you really think back to those moments, that's when you were making those sorts of decisions. Fifth and sixth graders. We have a ministry called Club 56. We can show up on a Sunday morning and you sit down at a table with the same group of guys or the same group of girls week in, week out. And you get to teach them scripture. You get to teach them about the Bible. You get to lead them in games and, and worship. You get to help show them the gospel through your words and through your actions. Those kids go to youth, which is honestly a place that a lot of us probably found a lot of spiritual development in our youth ministries. Seventh through twelfth graders who need leaders 
We use so many college students because you are the most absolutely effective person that can walk into those youth kids' lives, who can show up with them on a Bible study on Wednesday and teach them about what it looks like to follow the Lord, even as a college student. So many of them have no idea. So many of us had no idea what it looked like to follow the Lord in college. We just thought, ah, you just do your own thing or whatever. You're able to step into that and speak truth, to speak love, to show them the gospel through your words and your actions. You know what? We don't just have this next generation coming up. We have our generation on campus right now. We have people who need to hear the gospel, who need to see the gospel. That's why we have serve groups where you have community outreach or you're praying for them week in, week out. Or maybe you're uh, on our crew team. You're, you're having work projects so that we can send people overseas to other college towns in East Asia and South Asia. Man, so many opportunities. And I'd say is so many times we find our opportunities uh, serving and ministering to people that look just like us, that kind of come from the same backgrounds. And you know, that's great. God uses that. God specifically prepares us to, to minister to people that are like us. And that's a beautiful thing that we can relate to people on so many different levels. But the reality is that, man, we have more and more people showing up in our town, on our campus, who are nothing like us. And we need to be mindful of that. And we should be prepared for that. We have people in our classes and in our labs and teaching our seminars who they follow other gods. They worship other deities. They, they, they hold and they read other books. And that should break our hearts. Because as believers, we look at that and we know that person is devoting themselves, dedicating themselves to death. That should break us apart, knowing that those people are headed towards destruction when they think they've found salvation. So this semester, we're doing something new and different that I'm so excited about. We're on Sunday mornings, 9.15. Again, I know it's a lot earlier than this. But at 9.15 on Sundays for, the, for five weeks, okay, not, and starting in a couple weeks, but we're going to have a five-week elective where you show up for those five weeks and we teach you and we train you in how to engage with those other religions, how to engage with those other people. You look at, I mean, what is Hinduism? What do they believe? Where are they coming from? We, not, we, we grow in our understanding of these other religions, of these other cultures, and then we take that, and we don't just kind of give you this information, but we're also going to train you. So this is how you share the gospel. These are your inroads. These are the conversation starters. This is the way that you can interact with that person in a way that doesn't immediately turn them off because they think you're just some dumb American. We want to train you in how to engage with those religions, with those people you're going to encounter in Hinduism or, or Islam or, or Mormonism or atheism, whatever it is. We want to help you. We want to train you in that. Because God is calling you to share the gospel in those environments. And we want to be a part of what God has also promised. That he's going to equip us. He's promised us. In Hebrews 13, we went through it last semester, the God of peace is going to equip you with every good thing to do his will. He's going to be working in us what is pleasing before him through Jesus Christ, in whom be glory forever. Amen. Praise the Lord that he equips us to fulfill the calling that he places on our lives. We can trust that he's going to equip us. We can also trust that he has a plan. 
We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. We know that we are all called by the Lord to share the gospel in these different environments. So please make yourself available. Please go before the Lord. Ask him, man, where are you calling me? That's why we're actually going to take a minute right now before the band leads us uh, in just a couple more songs. We're going to take a minute and we're going to grab a partner. We do this from time to time. I hope it doesn't freak you out. But you're going to find a partner, one or two people that are sitting near you. And whether you know them or don't, get to know them real quick. And then share with that person, where is God calling you to present the gospel? Just give them a name. Or a, or a place or an organization. You can say Steve, or you can say uh, this one flow, or you can say, uh, you know, campus, or, or, or this, this kids ministry that maybe I heard mentioned. Maybe that would be my place. Maybe this small group that I'm already kind of a part of. Share just briefly with that partner so that you can pray for each other. Because God has promised to equip us. And one of the ways he does that is through the people in our lives, the community that he surrounds us with. So again, they'll, they'll start uh, leading us in song here in a couple minutes. When that happens, feel free to either keep praying or, or, or you can join us in song. You can just sit and pray silently, whatever you want. But over these next couple minutes, take a moment, share with that partner, where is God calling you to present the gospel? And start praying for each other, that the Lord would equip you, that the Lord would give you the courage and the strength and the power to face that crisis head on, to run that race well. So start that right now.